This evening, let's read together from Revelation chapter 1, right through from verse 1 to verse 20. This is the Word of God. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who was Sorry, from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Excuse me. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. Friends, um, do indeed have your Bibles open at Revelation chapter 1. As I bring a message from God's Word this evening, do be looking and reading and following along and checking what I say against the Word of God. Let's just pause briefly to pray just now before I begin. Lord, the heavens declare your glory. The skies declare the work of your hands. Though they have no speech or words, their voice goes into all the earth. Your law, Lord, is perfect, refreshing the soul. Your statutes, Lord, are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Your precepts, Lord, are right, giving joy to the heart. Your commands, Lord, are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold. By your words, Lord, your servants are warned. In keeping your decrees, there is great reward. But Lord, who can discern their own errors? Lord, forgive our hidden faults. Keep your servants from willful sins. Lead us and guide us in your ways, Lord. And may the, mouths, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts this evening be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> well, friends, as I said, do turn to, to Revelation and have God's word open in front of you. And perhaps you might spare a thought for um, the folks in uh, Kilwinning and East Kilbride. Um, I, I, won't ever, I won't say I've perfected this sermon, but I have cut it down a fair bit since my first time of thinking this through. When I tried to cover foolishly of me the whole of Revelation chapter 1 in one sermon, um, 
I then tried to chop it down a bit um, when I was at East Kilbride, and you'll be pleased to know I've worked on it a bit more since then. So we're mainly covering uh, the first eight verses this evening, and God willing, I'll maybe get a chance at some point in time to come back and cover verses 9 to 20. But as we look at these words this evening, I was thinking about us progressing into a new year. A new year often brings time of contemplation, perhaps as individuals, perhaps in our families, but perhaps also for us as a church. We wonder what the year ahead will bring. Maybe that seems a bit too philosophical. And indeed, my family will have heard me wax lyrical about, it's just another day. It's just another calendar. I can't tell you what this year will bring for our fellowship. Indeed, given the last couple of years, more and more people are realizing that we can't really tell what tomorrow will bring with any certainty. But I can tell you that there is good news. Those of us who love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ know the one who does know the future and not only knows the one who knows the future, but who owns it. But if we were thinking ahead, excuse me, if we were thinking ahead to what the coming year might hold for us as a church, beginning to make plans or refine our plans that we've had from the last year, review where we've been, maybe it'd be good to start with a question. Church, What's it all about? What's it all for? What are we doing here in Covenant Church? What are we doing here in the valley? Why do we come together? A strange, well, maybe I should speak for myself as a strange person, but for the rest of us, as a bunch of ordinary people gathering on a Sunday, when other people are doing pretty much anything but coming to church. I suspect that most people who don't come to church might readily admit that they just don't really know what church is all about. They may just simply say that it's not relevant to them. But if we did ask the question and we got some answers, well, I wonder what we might get. Well, I decided I'd go somewhere fairly simple for that answer. Um, I couldn't find the Nat 5 study on it, and I decided Shona had more than enough studying to do just now without me asking her that question. So I went to the BBC bite-sized guide for GCSE, what I would have known in my day as religious education, but it's probably got some other name now. And the the BBC bite-sized guide says, the main function of a local church is, and then it goes on, here we are, a place for people to go to worship. This includes people attending church services or visiting the church for private prayer. Not bad so far. There are also many other religious functions which take place in a church, such as rites of passage ceremonies. Rites of passage include, for example, baptism, marriage, or funeral. I thought that was an interesting and unusual choice of words. Rites of passage ceremonies. And the BBC Bite Size goes on to say, Christians believe that it is part of their duty to act in a moral way. And this involves helping others around them. 
The church can play a vital role in, Christian help, in Christians helping others as they provide, for example, food banks. There are also many non-religious functions that can take place in a church building, e.g. creche facilities, youth groups, community meeting places, such as keep fit classes, adult education classes, charity events, coffee mornings, birthday parties, concerts. Or maybe it could be flipped around the other day and say, or the other way and say that, well, even in the Darville Town Hall, the church can meet here, where all these other non-religious things happen anyway. And the bite-sized version says, Jesus taught the importance of helping others who are less fortunate, and this is why the church has these extra functions. It's interesting to read what others think the church is all about. But what about us? As the people gathering in this place, the people who would say we are the church, what do we think church is all about? And I hope that as we consider uh, the verses from Revelation tonight, we'll get a picture of what the church is all about. Or actually, I should really change my question because it's not what the church is all about. It's who the church is all about. If what we build the church upon is not the right who, then like any building with a weak or incorrect foundation, it might look nice. It might even serve some of the purposes that BBC Bite Size would think are part of a church. But if the church is not built on the right foundation, it will come crashing down. So let's get into these verses in Revelation and think first of all a bit about the context. What's happening here? Who is this to? The writer, well, they're identifying themselves as John and it is indeed believed to be the Apostle John. And he's doing what he's commanded to do in verse 10 and 11, we read, I, that is John, heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So John was writing down what he saw and sending it to the churches. So the book of Revelation is a letter. Although it's not just a letter, it's in part a letter. It's really a combination of three types of biblical lit literary work. That being apocalypse, which, is a, which means a revealing of something hidden. The other type is it's prophecy bringing a foretelling of things and a message from God to his people. And then that third style that I mentioned is that it's a letter written for a recipient and with a purpose. When was it written? Well, it was written in about AD 95. And at that time, just towards the end of the first century, the Roman emperor was the emperor Domitian. 
He was emperor from AD 81 to 96. And he was persecuting the followers of Jesus. Prior to Domitian, the the emperor Nero had started persecuting Christians. But apparently that was mainly in or near to Rome. But the emperor Domitian, he really wanted all the people in the empire to acknowledge him as a deity. And so Christians proclaiming that the one they were following, Jesus, proclaiming that Jesus is God and the only God, was not acceptable in Domitian's world. And so the persecution spread and became more intense than it had been under Nero. There really was no easy life for the followers of Jesus, for those who were part of the church. Now more and more in recent years, I've become more aware of how fortunate we are in the UK to have centuries where the foundation of our society has been Christianity and Christian values and the teaching from God's word. It may be that there are increasing numbers of people who don't like the teachings of Christ, or at least there may be more people who don't like the notion of not being free to make your own individual choices and having a God that sets standards for obedience. There's definitely a decrease in the tolerance of the idea that the standards of human life are not individual personal choice, but are set by God. But despite changes in our society, in the UK we are still not the same, in the same situation as some of our brothers and sisters in countries elsewhere around the world, where there is indeed outright persecution, much like there was for the believers in the days of the Emperor Domitian. Just this past week, you might have had to go looking for it on some of the news channels, but even the BBC World Service reported on Open Doors, just publishing their World Watch List for 2022 And between the Open Doors website and the Barnabas website, to name just a couple, you can find out about some of the real struggles our brothers in Christ are suffering across the world. Not just struggles, but persecution. Wherein the top country now has become, the top hardest country now to live as a Christian has become Afghanistan. Where being a believer will almost certainly result in your death. Not your death in your bed of an old age, but being killed for your faith. This should drive us onto our knees before the Lord for our brothers and sisters who are part of our church across the world, or part of his church across the world. And it's into this situation that John's letter is being sent to fellow Christians. 
In those days, it was, it was far more than just a distrust of this sect from the Jewish people or a dislike of them or not liking them. Proclaiming Jesus as Lord, as I mentioned, well, that went against the whole of the desire of the emperor to be seen as a deity. It usurped the emperor's and the empire's authority. It even challenged the way business was done and challenged the very way of life in society. Promiscuous and or perverse sexual practices are actually not a new invention. Despite what many in our modern age might like to think about the so-called sexual revolution in recent decades. You just need to look into the practices in, the, in Ephesus of temple prostitution. Another such promiscuous and immoral behaviour that were the very fabric of society. And if you were not part of that society, your business and your personal life suffered. And yet, in that very society, the followers of Jesus were called to live in obedience to God, not following their own personal desires or what might get them on in the world. And that led to persecution. It could cause quite a stir. Remember the riot in Ephesus following Paul's preaching there. You can read about that in Acts chapter 19, particularly at verses 23 to 29, where we're reminded the whole city was in uproar with cries of, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What a challenge the followers of Christ faced. We don't face that level of persecution here in Scotland right now. But for other followers of Christ, the church in those days, and indeed in other parts of the world now, that persecution is very real. That persecution, friends, is part of an attack of the devil. But it's not the only attack of the devil that he uses to get at God and God's people. The enemy of God, the devil himself, continues to use three main tactics to try and pull the followers of Christ away from following and obeying the Lord. To attack not just Christ's church, but Christ himself. As we think of these things, you can see them replicated against Christ and against his followers. I've mentioned persecution, but I'll quickly mention the others. As well as that persecution, there's false teaching. And then the other is the temptation and the falling into sin or immorality. Or another way we might look at them The devil can attack physically. He can attack intellectually. Or he can make an attack on morality and moral standards. What will we as Christ's church face in 2022? Well, we will face the same attacks that the devil has used against Christ and against his church for years and years and years. Persecution 
false teaching and sin. He will use these to wage war against the very relationship between us as followers of Christ and our Lord Jesus himself. He used them in the early days of the church and he's not stopped using them now. They may come in different forms and they may come in different measures for different people in different places. But it's the same attacks from the devil. How might we face those attacks? Or how might we help others face those attacks? Well, when we know friends or family that are struggling or in difficulty, it doesn't even need to be that we're thinking that there's spiritual warfare happening and that they're being attacked by the devil. It might just be that we see them struggling. What do we want to do? Naturally, we want to support them. We want to bring them comfort, to encourage them, to help them. We might visit them. We're used to the luxury of cars or, or even reasonably good public transport these days. Or maybe even a phone call. Or, um, dare I say it, a text message or a Facebook message or some other message to connect with them. But if you can't get to someone in person, you might be a bit more old-fashioned. And write them a letter. Sending them words of encouragement. And so it is, as John finds himself on the island of Patmos, banished to this small island eh, off the coast of what is modern-day Turkey, he is commanded to write to the fellow believers, to the Christians in the churches who are facing persecution, false teaching, and immorality. And he's told to write to them, the words of Christ himself. You'll see um, on the slide uh, the, the way the setup is for the, um, the churches that Ephesus is listed first. It's the nearest to the island of Patmos and the rest go round clockwise in order of travel. So you, if you were on the delivery run of the first century equiv equivalent of the Royal Mail, um, the uh, the commentators say this is the way the journey would have happened. It would have made sense to come across and go round in that way. And here's the Lord commanding John to write to these churches and to send it round them. And God willing, um, we'll get an opportunity to work through not just the remainder of chapter one, but on into chapters two and three as we read those specifics of the letters and the messages to each of those churches. Not just for those churches, but of course preserved for us in Scripture to help us think of God's Word to us today. They're not for us to ignore or to think of as too difficult, though there is difficult imagery sometimes to work through in Revelation. But they're for us to think and look at how prayerfully we can apply them to our lives. But we note something as we read this chap the introduction of this chapter. This isn't just a word of encouragement, as I said, from John to the struggling first century Christians. Yes, John is writing to it, but it is from Christ himself. 
Verse 1 says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And remember in verse 10, John says, he heard the voice behind him which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the churches. So these are the words from Christ himself for his church. As we go on through in chapters 2 and 3, you'll see words repeated. These are the words of chapter 2 verse 1 says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Verse 8 of chapter 2 says, These are the words of him who is the first and the last. In verse 12 of chapter 2, it says, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And so on. So we can read here words from Christ to his church. Other translations, though, also help us as we look at the ESV and the New King James, for example. They helpfully translate for us verse 1, not just saying the revelation from Jesus Christ, but they say, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so from what I read in preparing um, for uh, this evening and uh, the times I've worked through this, um, both from and of are correct. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, but it is very much a revelation of Jesus Christ. And what an amazing revelation that is. And so I better move on so that we get some time to look at who this Christ is that is revealed in these verses. This Christ is described for us in verse 5 as the one who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Christ is the faithful witness of God. If anyone wants to know what God is like, let them look to the one who is the faithful witness. In Colossians 1 verse 15, uh, we read those words, The Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. Or as I found it perhaps in uh, more common terms from the message, we look at this son and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this son and see God's original purpose in everything he created. We see in Christ the living God. But what more of this Christ, the one who's sending a letter through John? He's the image of God, the faithful witness. But verse 6 goes on to tell us, he is the one who has loved us. I don't know about you, friends, But there are times when I struggle to think how on earth can I be loved given all my faults and failings even by my own family 
and I know their faults and failings, how much more amazing is it that the holy and righteous God should have loved us? Do you see the contrast here between the emperor Domitian who, when those who wouldn't recognize him as a deity, what did he do? He began to persecute them, to try and force worship out of them. And yet here is the Lord God Almighty, who is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. And when we fail to give that to him, what does he do? He loved us. He loved us. And then the verse continues in even more amazing terms. If it can be possible to be more amazing than thinking about God having loved us. The verse goes on to tell us that Christ is the one who shed his blood for us. Because loving us had a cost. Because in our sin and in our failing to give God all the praise and glory and worthy and praise and glory and honor that He alone is worthy of, in failing to do that, each and every one of us deserved eternal condemnation. The wrath of God to be poured out on us forever. And yet, God loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Do you know what it is like, friends, to be freed from your sins? Maybe it's nicer to think about being loved by God that has a nicer ring to it, doesn't it? But it says he loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We know we fail, yet the amazing thing is that God has made us to be his people, to come to him through Christ and to be his holy nation to serve his God and Father. Christ, the faithful witness of God, has loved us. He came and he freed us from our sins by his blood. Scripture tells us, do you want to know what God is really like? Then look to Christ. I wonder what image we have as we think of what Christ looks like. Well, next time round, we'll look at the image given in verses 9 to 20. But for now, let's think of that verse that says, For us, he loved us and shed his blood for us. That wasn't just some little cut on his hands, friends. We know that he was spat upon, mocked, beaten, scared.
scourged with a whip and then had nails driven through his hands and feet and hung on a cross. With good reason, the Bible tells us that cursed is one who hangs on a tree. Yet more than all that physical pain, even if we dare to bring into our minds that image of God hanging on the cross, more than that, we should be jolted by the cry of Christ himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ the only man who fully kept the covenant law, the only one who could walk and stand before the presence of God, holy and righteous, took on himself our sin, shed his blood for us, paid the price for the wages of our sin is death. And he bore that as he hung on the cross, not just the physical pain and death, but the separation, the God-forsakenness that he experienced hanging there on the cross.